Well, as Russell indicated, we're kind of in the, the final installments of the book of 1 Samuel. The, the entangled story of Samuel and Saul and David is finally coming to a close. David's story is going to continue through into 2 Samuel. Samuel's story has ended, although he does make a guest appearance in this section. And Saul's story is about to end in the next two chapters. And so in many ways, these three chapters that are kind of a sandwich with David doing dodgy stuff on the outside and, and Saul putting a filling in the centre of even more dodgy stuff in the middle, it kind of is designed to set us up for those last two chapters. It's kind of spiking the ball that the, the book of 1 Samuel is going to smash down across the net to finish it. But it's also bringing to a head and crystallising two messages that the book of Samuel has been putting before us throughout the chapters. One to do with Saul and one to do with David. The door that Saul goes through, we're being told, don't go through that door that Saul went through. And with David, it's a somewhat more complex message, but it's one that points us towards God and his capacity to deliver and his desire to do so. So let's start with David, because that's where the passage itself begins. David, at the beginning of these three chapters, takes stock in verse 1. He reflects and goes, if things keep going this way, sooner or later I'm going to be caught by Saul. And you can see why he takes that position. Saul has been on the run, David's been on the run now for ages. And one time after another, it has been a near miss. The Philistines raid the land at just the right time when he was going to be caught. Uh, a word from God comes to him telling him to clear out of an area. Uh, Saul takes at the wrong toilet break at the wrong time in the wrong, wrong place. And then most spectacularly in the previous chapter, a supernatural sleep over the entirety of Saul's army so that David and his mate can have an argument above Saul's head and no one wakes up. But David looks at that and looks at it soberly and goes, this just can't continue. If I keep going down this path, Saul will catch me. I have to take action. And so pushed to the limit, he takes decisive action. He gathers his 600 men, his merry band of merry men, if he's Robin Hood. Um, he's kind of his group of merry men, but they're not nice merry men. We've already been told that to use the language of uh, a movie from a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you'll never find such a hive of, get this right, a hive of such wretched scum and villainy, I think was the uh, movie from the original Star Wars movie. That is kind of uh, David's band of 600, that they are the terrible people of Israel that gathered around him. He collects that 600, they take their families and they relocate into enemy territory. David goes into exile, not just for a period. The families go with them. They are translocating. They are, in a sense, refugees. And it is an enormous step. David has already said in his conversation to Saul in the previous chapter that if he's forced to take this step, he's going to be forced to end up serving other gods to be able to hold on to his faith and his children to hold on to that faith and their children to hold on to it in a land that does not know the Lord, David doesn't see good prospects there. But David can't see an alternative. 
and so they take the action that they need to take. And the question it raises for us is, is David calling this right? Is this David sinning? David himself has said that to do this is tantamount to signing up to idolatry. Is David ignoring the way in which God has protected him time and time and time again? Is this just him not trusting God? Are you really supposed to seek refuge from God's anointed king in the land of God's enemies? But the counter-argument is this. Surely God expects David to take reasonable precautions. To not do that, surely that is to test God rather than to trust God. Was David wrong to send his parents to Moab so that they couldn't be used as hostages? Was David wrong to flee Jerusalem rather than just sit there and go, hey, God's on my side, I'm invulnerable, you can't touch me, Saul? Was David wrong to dodge the spear when Saul threw it rather than just sit and wait for an angel to kind of bounce it away from him? There comes a point where God expects David to actually do his part while trusting him. Already in the Old Testament, God has at times taken his people out of the promised land in order to keep them safe. Jacob and the nation of Israel have been taken out at times in order for their lives to be preserved. And when the Bible writers in the Old Testament record David's sins, this is not one of the incidences that they record as against David. And so it's hard, I think, for you and I to pass judgment here. There's no way in the world you could hold David up at this point as an example of faith. If you're looking to what faith looks like, David running into enemy territory is hardly what you would point to as an example that you should look to for faith. But we don't quite have what we need either to be able to say clearly that it's sin. And I think the writer is being deliberate in doing this. Makes us feel what David feels. At a loss, not sure which way is up pushed to the limit. That's how David feels and the very way the passage is written gives us a small taste of that so we can experience it. We just don't know what to make of David at this point. But if we don't know what to make of his decision to go, we're in a better position when it comes to what he does when he's there. His behaviour is sketchy to say the least. He goes to Gath and you go, seriously? Gath, where Goliath the champion came from. You've already been to Gath, David. Remember, you went there with Goliath's sword and they mentioned the words to the song and you got scared and you pretended to be crazy to escape. Why on earth would you go back to Gath? But it turns out, David has the cunning and the insight that only a true manipulator has. He can sniff out weakness. And he realises that Akish must be the most gullible man ever to have walked the earth. He is almost the platonic form of the mark that the con artist looks for to be able to pull his craft on. And so David plays the long con. He goes to Akish, managed to find some way to to make up for the fact that he pretended to be mad the last time, gets enough trust from Akish to be able to be given a town away from um, Akish's eyesight so that no loose lips among his 600 people and the families can give away what he's about to get up to and from this new base of operations David does what he does best which is to kill people 
That's kind of his thing. And he goes on raids. And he raids the ancestral peoples of the area. The, the people that God has already said sooner or later must be wiped out because of their sins. And David goes and attacks them and is brutal. He wipes out all the adults. We're not told what he does with the children, but he takes all the good stuff and brings it back. And as he meets up with Akish after a raid, no doubt to give him his tribute, Akish would ask him, so, so where did the tribute come from? And David would say, oh, from my own tribe of Judah, or from somewhere else in Israel, or from the Kenites, who are the Israelite allies. He'd lie. And Akish, being incredibly gullible, bought it, time after time after time. It's a brutal behaviour, and it's dishonest. It's lying. And that's how David conducts himself. It is a method that has an enormous price tag attached to it. God has said that David is going to be the future king of Israel. The longer David continues doing this, for this to work, everyone has to buy David's story. Which means the longer David does this, the more he gets the reputation of being a Philistine patsy, even if he wasn't in reality. Which will make it very hard for him to rule Israel in the future. It's not David's finest hour. But here's the paradox. It actually is David's finest hour at the same time. David is pushed to the wall. His life is completely in chaos. His life is in danger, not just him, his family as well. It would be so easy for him to make this easier on himself. Just not raid. Do garrison duty. Be a bodyguard. Be, be something else. Why go and do raids particularly? But even in exile, God's king is going to work to deliver his people. Even in exile, God's king will continue to work to save his people. He'll continue to fight against the enemies of God. Even if he doesn't do it in a good way, it's precisely when David is pushed to the edge that you see what David is like and what's driving him. He seeks the kingdom of God, even at risk and peril to himself. And even if we don't necessarily agree with how he goes about it, and we shouldn't, you've also got to recognise what he's doing at this point. That at this point in time, he is showing in a way that you can't see in any other circumstances that serving God and God's kingdom matters more to him than life itself. And so he signs up for a harder lot because of his desire to serve the kingdom of God. But as, not surprisingly, the other shoe sooner or later drops, the Philistines mass their armies again for a proper invasion of Israel. And now David is caught. His solution now is a trap. He is going to have to join the army that is going to fight God's people. You get a sense of what David's plan is with those little double-edged words. You're going to see what your servant can do. Akish, of course, is completely unable to pick up the double meaning there and honestly thinks that David is his servant, but you and I know that he's not. So we get that David seems to be implying something more along the lines of, I'm going to be taking you out with the rest at some point during the battle. You can get a sense as to what David's plan is, 
to attack from within the army to be able to try and rescue Israel. The problem we find, though, as we move to the next chapter, is that plan's not going to work. At this point, we move to Saul. This development that traps David also traps Saul. Saul now has also got his back up against the wall. He looks at the army as he has his army gathered and he's filled with fear. He does the military math and he can see that he has no chance of winning. If his army goes up against that army, it's over. But he has a problem. Samuel is dead. We've already been told that earlier in the book. Because it's so important for this chapter, we're reminded of it. And Saul himself has been doing at least something God has said. He's been trying to clear out the spiritists and the mediums from the land. Which means that there's no easy access to supernatural counsel. In Israel, you had two basic choices. You either went to God and you asked God and you heard from God, or you went to a spiritist and a medium who would contact the dead. And God's law made it very clear that you weren't to do that. That that was defiance against God and ultimately was just not prepared to trust in God and what he was prepared to give you. If you wanted it, ask God. Don't go here. And so David, Saul's been clearing them out, which means there's no longer any spiritists or mediums that kind of have an advert in the local paper saying medium services, reasonable prices. He has to do some work to find one now. He doesn't have to do that much work. He asks his attendants and they're able to go, yep, there's one just over there. She's just keeping a low profile. And so he does kind of similar to what David does. He also lies. At some points, these two figures are very similar. He puts on different clothes. He doesn't let him, so that people know that he's Saul. He goes at night time. But whereas David is an impressive liar... Saul is almost incompetent. He just can't help himself. The woman says, why are you setting a trap for me? Don't you know that, that, that Saul kills people for doing this? And he goes, I can assure you, nothing's going to happen to you. And it's like, really? Who would you be possibly to give that kind of assurance? But it's worse than just that. He calls on the name of the Lord to give that assurance. In the very act of disobeying God and rebelling against God's command and cancelling the penalty that God himself had set down in his word for this, he brings the name of the Lord in to back it. It's at precisely this moment you see what the issue is with Saul. He really thinks he is able to countermand what God himself has said when Saul needs it to be different that because Saul needs it this way, it just will be this way and God will just have to fall into line. Saul needs this to happen and so therefore the word of God is null and void and he'll even bring God in to back that up for him. Right there you see the issue with Saul and so it's kind of a shock when it works. God, who has been silent for Saul, who refuses to speak to him, whether by prophet or by the Urim, no surprise with the Urim, that's the device the, the priests use that you could use to ask things of God, no surprise that wouldn't work, he's killed basically all the priests, or by dreams, 
that you can sense the anger that God has towards Saul, that the, the, the intensity of the anger is heard in the deafening silence to how God responds to Saul when Saul seeks a word from God. And then all of a sudden, somehow or other, it works. And Saul gets what he wants. He gets Samuel to give him a word. But it's not like that at all. He doesn't get the word he wants. He doesn't get told what he can do. What he gets is a word of unrelenting doom from start to finish. Where Samuel spells out in small words to him exactly how he got here and exactly why this has happened and exactly why God is his enemy and makes it clear to him that there is now no hope for him. It's not just that he's going to die, everything he has built and invested in is going to be wiped away. His kingdom is done. Not just is he going to die, his sons will be dead tomorrow as well. They will all join Samuel. And the army of Israel will also be wiped out. Everything is going to be washed away. David is going to have to restart from scratch. There is nothing with the word Saul on it that will be left. It is complete and unrelenting doom. The only thing worse than having God be silent is to hear a word like this from God. And all that Saul has managed to accomplish is to dig himself further into the hole. And so Saul now is terrified again, not just by the military calculation, but by taking on board what Samuel has said. He understands that there is now no hope. He does not want to eat, but he's convinced to eat. And it is, I think, possibly the worst bit of the chapter. This woman has the sentence of death over her by the word of God. She is a dead woman walking. And Saul is a dead man walking. He is a condemned man. He has his last supper with a witch. It just, it's just sad. It just shows how far he's fallen, where his fellowship really is. It was already flagged right back in chapter 15 that the irony of all this, that, that Samuel is speaking to Saul about his rebellion. Why? Because Saul committed the sin of divination. And what did Samuel tell Saul all the way back in chapter 15 when Saul rebelled and didn't obey the command? That to rebel is like the sin of divination. He rebelled and now he commits the sin of divination. It has been rebellion the whole way down exemplified by this final act that brings it there as he comes to his final crashing, hitting the ground. There are two really easy rabbit holes to go down on this chapter. One is to get caught up with the whole issue of the magic. So very briefly, let's clear that one to one side. There's a whole line of interpretation that tries to, to power this chapter and go, look, it's a demon here. A courser which couldn't bring up one of God's prophets. It's not what the chapter's saying. The chapter's clearly saying it's Samuel. So you just have to deal with it. It worked. 
Sorry about that. It'd be nice if it was different. But it's Samuel, spooky Samuel, from the grave, giving a final message as a sort of a comeback tour. But you need to understand the Bible's bigger picture on this kind of thing. The Bible unrelentingly says, have nothing to do with anything supernatural of this kind of nature. Overarchingly, its position is, it's lies, it's hollow, it does not give you what it promises. It promises one thing but gives you something different and it's trickery. Overwhelmingly, its position is that this stuff is weak and powerless and lies. Nonetheless, the Bible does recognise that sometimes those lies have teeth. There are a, a couple of points in the Bible that indicate something happens. This is one. When the magicians oppose Moses, they're able to re reproduce the first couple of signs. In, in Revelation, the false prophet is able to do signs. But the overarching testimony of the Bible is, even though that is the case, don't be engaged with it, and certainly don't be scared of it. It presents no threat to God, it presents no threat to God's people. Even here, the witch has no control over Samuel, Saul has no control over Samuel, God effortlessly goes, you want a prophet? Fine, you can have a prophet. And you don't want this prophet because he's going to speak my word. Even the supernatural is forced to serve God. And this is the overarching position the Bible has on this kind of thing. It's not an enlightenment view that magic doesn't exist. It is a biblical view that there's something there but ultimately it's lies but lies that sometimes have a certain amount of teeth to them. But in the hand of God, even they are required to serve. So just have nothing to do with it. Here's the other rabbit hole. Some of us are gifted with too strong a conscience. And that could be you or someone you know. And when you hear a passage like this with Samuel, with Saul, who inquires of God and gets nothing back, who gets a word that cuts him off, you go that's me, God's rejected me, there's something I did 54 years ago and God's never going to forgive me of it, it was horrendously bad, I hit my brother or something. Sensitive consciences. You need to understand that if that's you this morning, it's almost definitely not you. Saul is a warning but that's not the warning that he's giving us. Here's a warning of what rebellion looks like. Right from the start of his career, he rebelled against God and would not obey the command that he was given. He was then given a word of judgment that his kingdom would be taken and given to someone else. His response to that word was to go, let's see if I can work out who it is. I think it's David. Let's see if I can wipe him out. His entire career has been rebelling and rejecting the Word of God. Even at this last moment when it's clear it's all coming to a head, he already has words from God that tell him what to do. They tell him to repent. That's what he needed to do from the start. And rather than do the Word that he was given, he wants a different Word. He wants his Word. He wants a Word on his terms.
He doesn't want God. He just wants God to act like a grandfather figure with a magic wand, to wave it and to fix things for him. But once God has done that, you know what Saul will do. He'll say, thank you, get out of here. I've got my life to live. And that is the warning that Saul is to us. Yes, he inquires of the Lord. But he has never sought God. He has never sought the kingdom of God. And it is never more clear than in this chapter what has been driving him the whole time. And Saul, for you and I, is a warning. There is a door in life marked Saul that you can open and you can walk through and you can go down. And this chapter is reminding us to not take that path because it ends in doom. It ends in hopelessness. It ends in judgment with no mercy. If you will not take God at his word and you will not listen to God when he speaks to you, then the only word that comes to you is the word that comes to Saul, which is judgment without mercy, which is doom and hopelessness. It is hard to have sympathy for Saul. At every point, he has been the architect of what is coming to him. At every point, he has done this to himself. And it is hard not to have sympathy for him. Because he is not some moustache-twirling Hollywood villain that does evil because it's kind of cool. He is so very like you and I. It is so easy to see you or I do exactly what he has done for exactly the same reasons. And the Bible wants us to feel that tug in both directions to go, I could be Saul, so I need to be on guard to not be Saul, because my goodness do I not want to be Saul. Well, the doom on Saul now makes David's problem even worse. David's not aware of this, but you and I now are. David's plan can't work. There will be no last-minute save for Israel. If David tries to do something fancy from within the army, he's not going to be saving Israel. It's possible he himself will go down in flames at the same time, caught up in this mess of Saul's making. Israel's doom has been pronounced, the army is dead tomorrow. Which means the only possibility is for David now to be delivered from the situation he's gotten himself into. And so our last chapter is seeing just how effortlessly God is able to deliver David from this problem that David's got himself into. They're marching along. David is at the rear of the army with his 600 crack SAS troops, all of them Israelites. And the Philistine commanders go, oh, wait a second. What are we doing with with the giant killer and his 600 crack troops doing at the rear of the army marching with the generals? And Akish goes, and he's just classic Akish, it's David, he was the servant of Saul and I've had him for a whole year and he's been amazingly good. David is classic David, as he's given the news as to what the Philistine commanders require. He's checking out to make sure nothing's leaked. What, what have I done? What, what have you heard or seen about your servant that this all of a sudden has shifted? He, He knows he's on very thin ice. 
there's still the bravado and the double-edged words. Why can't I go into battle to fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Which is certainly not Akish. It's almost definitely not Saul, but almost definitely the Lord, who is his Lord and King. Achish continues to be utterly naive and gullible. David continues to be deceptive and wanting to kind of fight God's enemies. But God neither uses Achish's gullibility or David's deceptions to rescue him. He uses the words to a song. It's one of the funniest moments in the entire book, in my view. This song, written by some ancient Taylor Swift person, has, was the architect of everything that has gone wrong in David's life to this point. Why did Saul go, David's a threat and I have to wipe him out? Because a bunch of women, in order to celebrate his victory over Goliath, wrote a little song about how Saul had killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And that was the moment when the switch flicked in Saul's head. That was the moment when David had to go on the run why did David have to flee Gath the first time we went there? Because the people went, boy, that's a catchy song, and that's the David that that song's about. Saul has killed his thousands, and David's his tens of thousands. You can imagine that when Saul, David finally becomes king, he tracks down the writer to the song and explains in small words why that song is never, ever, ever to be sung again in his kingdom. And yet here in his darkest moment, when he doesn't realise the danger that he is in, God uses the words of the song to get him out of it. The Philistine commanders go, yeah, we've heard what you've said, Akish, but there's a really powerful Taylor Swift song that tells us something differently, and so we're going to send David home. God uses something as small and irrelevant and powerless as a song to deliver David. It is a small foretaste of what God will do by saving the world by something as small and powerless as a man dying on a cross. It is just a little token of God's amazing capacity to save, using the smallest and weakest of things to do so. But also, don't miss the note of how generously God saves here. David has not earned this. This is not a reward because David has covered himself in glory in these chapters. This is not a quid pro quo where David has been so good that he deserves this. David has been tenaciously loyal to God. But the rest of it has been pretty average or sub-average. God here saves David without finding fault, without slapping him around the head without putting a sting in the tail, David, God just effortlessly takes him out. Not because he's so good, but just because God is so open-handed. It's this weird paradox that is with David. Does God do it because of David or does God do it because of God? And it's kind of yes, as long as you understand what the yes is in both cases. It's not that David's deserved it, but fundamentally, David loves God and trusts God and seeks God and wants to serve God. He's God-centered. And God isn't going to treat harshly someone who is like that, but he will act graciously to someone who is like that. 
He will deliver them. But it's not because they're good, it's not because they've earned it, it's not because there's anything about them there. That odd paradox there that God saves by faith, but nonetheless it's by faith, it's, it's here embodied in David. There's nothing within David to deserve what's coming to him here. But yet, on the other hand, it's kind of fitting that God does this with such a loyal servant. And again, here we are given the other lesson. Don't be like Saul, but understand who David's God is. Understand his character and his power to save those who put their trust in him and seek him. Understand he is someone who can save and save with a song. That's who God is. And so by implication, be more like David. Seek God. Trust God. Whether it's easy or whether your back is to the wall, do your best as you can to actually be God-orientated and to seek first Him and His kingdom.